The homicide survivor deals with violent, sudden crime and death, and so the murder. It has to deal with this, this suddenness, and, the, and that's different because that changes the whole grief process. Ruth Markell speaks from experience about her son, Dan Markell, the Florida law professor ambushed in a murder-for-hire plot in a conspiracy that allegedly involves his ex-wife, who was a fellow law professor, and her brother and mother. You may think you have heard everything about this highly publicized case, but there is more. Hello, I'm Robert Riggs with a story from Inside the Crime Scene Tape about the murder victim's mother. During years of reporting, I witnessed the families of crime victims suffer, often in silence. No matter their race, religion, gender, socioeconomic, or public status, the trauma of homicide and violent crime leaves lifelong emotional scars on the families and friends of the victim. In my experience of covering wars and crimes, there is no such thing as closure for these painful losses. Ruth Markell says it's a life sentence that never ends. It began on a hot and muggy morning in Tallahassee, the capital of Florida, on Friday, July 18, 2014. 41-year-old Dan Markell, an internationally known criminal law professor at Florida State University, dropped his boys off at preschool, hit the gym, and returned home to his quiet, tree-canopied suburban neighborhood. A Prius rental car with two men inside followed Markell into his driveway. Before he could turn off the ignition, one of the men appeared at his driver's side window and pumped two 38 caliber rounds into his head. The hit men had driven in from Miami, 10 hours away. The brazen daylight assassination marked the beginning of an eight-year murder investigation and prosecutions that will continue into 2023. As of December 2022, three accomplices in the murder-for-hire scheme have been convicted, allegedly hired by the family of Markell's ex-wife, Wendy Adelson, so she could move to Miami with the couple's children. Before the murder, the court denied Adelson's petition to move the children away from their father. Wendy Adelson was a 35-year-old clinical law professor at Florida State at the time of the murder. She looked like the stereotypical girl next door, tall and slim, shoulder-length brunette hair with blonde highlights, sparkling crystal blue eyes enhanced by colorized contacts, a big smile, rose-colored lipstick with a full lower lip, and pearly white teeth. The case appeared to have gone cold for two years until 2016. An FBI sting operation dubbed The Bump started to unravel the tangled web of a murder conspiracy. Louis Riviera, one of the gunmen, told FBI agents that he and his accomplice Sigfredo Garcia, the trigger man, were hired for the hit because, quote, the lady wants her two kids back. Shortly after the murder of ex-husband, Wendy Adelson did move their children. Now, here's where it gets twisted, so stay with me. In his confession, Riviera told agents that Catherine Magbonawa, 
was the go-between for the contract killing. At the time of the murder, Magbonawa was dating Wendy Adelson's brother, Charlie, and was a dental assistant in his office. The hitman, Sigfredo Garcia, was Magwana's ex-boyfriend and the father of their children. I told you it was twisted. In his mugshot, Adelson looked like he had just rolled out of bed, frizzy black hair, an unkept Fu Manchu beard, and piercing hazel-colored eyes. Five months later, his former girlfriend, Catherine McBonawa, received a life sentence plus 60 years for her role in the murder. Louis Riviera testified that McBonawa delivered a brown paper bag filled with $37,000 in cash to him shortly after the murder. The trial also included an incriminating conversation covertly recorded by the FBI at a Miami restaurant between McBonawa and her then-boyfriend, Charlie Adelson. Hundreds of wiretaps recorded the Ferrari-driving Fort Lauderdale periodontist and real estate investor bragging about peddling steroids, tax evasion, traveling overseas to cavort with young women, and his collection of automatic weapons. The investigation also revealed that Charlie Adelson and his sister Wendy had many powerful friends in political and judicial high places. At the time of the FBI sting, Wendy Adelson was working as a clerk in a federal court. Charlie Adelson is expected to stand trial for murder in early 2023. Wendy Adelson has not been charged with a crime during McBonough's murder trial, She denied that her contentious divorce led to Markel's killing. But Jeffrey Lacasse, her boyfriend at the time of the murder, testified Wendy would complain about Danny to anyone who would listen. She despised living in Tallahassee. She blamed Markel for her being stuck in Tallahassee, Lacasse said, adding that Wendy had told him that if anything ever happened to Danny, she would return to South Florida. Lacasse told the court that after Wendy's motion to relocate was denied, her brother Charlie had investigated multiple ways to eliminate the problem of Dan Markell, including hiring a hitman. That comment was made just five days before the contract murder occurred. Wendy Adelson moved to Miami a few days later and changed her son's last name to her maiden name. When the murder-for-hire scheme came to light in 2016, Wendy Adelson cut off Ruth and Phil Markell from seeing their two grandsons. In 2019, Ruth Markell turned her grief and anger into passing a law to support grandparents' visitation rights in Florida. House Bill 1119, dubbed the Markell Act, sponsored by Representative Jackie Toledo and Senator Keith Perry, gave grandparents a path to seek visitation rights if a civil or criminal court finds a parent culpable of the other parent's death. Ruth Markell has written a book about her tragic journey to inspire and encourage crime victims. It's titled The Unveiling, A Mother's Reflection on Murder, Grief, and Trial Life. Here's our interview. Ruth Markell, thank you for joining the True Crime Reporter podcast to share the story of what you're still going through over the murder of your son, Dan Markell. It's been my experience in covering murder cases that the victim's family is 
often just forgotten in the process. What's been your experience? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, and even more thank you for acknowledging that the victim family is lost. So I'm from Canada, I should tell you that, and actually this is a small Canadian write-up, and the best description that I've heard yet, which I'll get into my own, is the victim is the orphan of the criminal system. So thank you for certainly focusing on this. That is so true, and I know that you have stated that it's a life sentence that never ends. This is true. You, the, the one thing that I think is so important to understand is uh, the whole experience of the homicide survivor. I can go into a little bit of a description because this is really, I'm so happy you be starting on the victim experience because I'm really trying to create a sensitivity to what happens to the victim in the whole process of dealing with the homicide. And there's two types of descriptions that I'm really wanting our audiences to know about. I'll talk about my book, which is Lifting the Veil, the Unveiling, but it's to show this whole victim experience. And the one experience, which is called a homicide survivor, which is very different than other kinds of loss and trauma. And a homicide survivor deals with violent, sudden crime and death and so the murder it has to deal with this the suddenness and the and that's different because that changes the whole grief process the second part of anybody who's going through um, a homicide and their victim is now the criminal system and they're separate one is psychological and the part i'm going to explain now is legal and the victim actually has rights uh, within the criminal system in Florida. Now, this is where my son, my late son, Dan Markell, was murdered. There is even something called Marcy's Law, which was passed in 2019, which does give the victim uh, several rights as they're going through the criminal process. What is unique about the trauma of a homicide experience and the impact on the family is the interaction between the psychological trauma being the homicide survivor and the victim in the criminal system. Yes. Let me take you back because I, I want our listeners to understand what crime victims families go through because you're, you're also a huge victim in this process. And also I, you know, the media throws around this, this term closure it's my experience that that means nothing. There's never closure. Everybody I've dealt with, and and also I was in Iraq embedded and was, you know, there were troops around us that didn't come home. There was never closure for their families. It's always there. Take me back to when you first received the notification that your son Dan had been assassinated, murdered in his driveway. Yes, this was really, really very difficult for all of us. Um, I will just go back a little bit and talk about Dan, because I think I'm not sure if your listeners had any highlighted background on who he was. Dan is Dan Markell, uh, who's known as the slain professor in Florida, and I'm known as the mother of the slain professor in Florida, but he's Canadian. And he lived in Canada until he left to go to undergrad in, in Harvard, uh, Harvard, uh, mm-hmm. obviously in Boston. Later on, he went to Harvard Law School and he went to England and to Israel to study and he received many, many degrees. He's very well known because he also started a blog 
called Prof's Blog, which was for young legal students. And this gave him international acclaim, which does resolve in certain situations into this whole murder story. In addition to that, he's the, he was the best father there could be. And I was most proud of him, actually, as a father. And he would go to the daycare center and read to the children all the different holidays. So this is just sort of who was Dan, because I think Dan, really, the background here certainly discusses and highlights, you know, the impact of how we found out. Dan was shot in the morning, 11 o'clock, on uh, July 14, 2014. And we, because we're in Canada, I don't know, because they couldn't find us. But in any way, they found us, if you want to call it, through Facebook. Our first contact was actually not with the police. But I was contacted uh, from the hospital where Dan's friends from the university, at that time, Dan worked for uh, Florida State University, FSU, and his friends uh, were able to go to the hospital because, you know, Tallahassee is a small town in relative terms. Like, you know, everybody knew him and, you know, and every the spinning started that he was shot. So they went to the to the hospital uh, where he was taken, and this is university colleagues and friends, and, and they called us finally. They got us, and the first call that I actually got, other than from his father, was from the rabbi, because now Dan was affiliated with different Jewish organizations, was from the rabbi at um, the Chabad, one of the like synagogues, and he told me he almost like what you would call last rites. He had just been there. And then he put me on with an emergency doctor. So my first contact was actually not law enforcement at all, but an emergency doctor. And the emergency doctor just, you know, described the situation. And he told me that uh, they didn't expect Dan to make it later than two o'clock the next morning, like 2 a.m., uh, you know, on the 15th, which is exactly what happened. So we actually didn't have, just to answer your initial point of questioning, we didn't have a law enforcement uh, communication because they were looking for us and it came in, you know, really in a different um, different way. And then following that, we did go to Tallahassee uh, the next day and because we're now leaving, you know, I'm leaving from Toronto. Toronto, I had to get back. I was in Montreal, I had to get back to Toronto to get my passport. I mean, the logistics behind the scenes were really something. And when we arrived to deal with your question about law enforcement, which actually uh, was a little bit like the next Sunday morning, uh, they were very, very empathetic and they introduced, you know, themselves and they they drove us around and, you know, kind of really uh, nurtured us in a, I don't mean in a food way, but in a supportive way. And we were then escorted everywhere we needed because at that time nobody knew what this murder case was about. So there was two parts to it. You know, they didn't imply that they thought that our safety was at hand, but they were very, very cautious. And once you learned the details of how he was murdered, did you suspect anyone at that point? Not me. <laughs> I didn't. I thought, cause, you know, Danny had this props blog that I mentioned. Others did. I didn't. Um, uh, so I went with this idea that, so he had this prof's blog and I actually told the police that they should look on it because previous two, three weeks earlier, and I had just by his fluke been looking at it, somebody had an, I would call it a dispute with Dan, 
because they felt um, maybe that he edited some of their comments or something. It was more like he was the leader, you know, the founder and so forth, and something of that tone. So I was I was very open um, to maybe that that being a source. I didn't consider it as a student, um, you know, taking out any vengeance, which there were all these like hypotheses at the beginning. So I didn't go right away to um, to sort of say that who I thought could have done it, where every many, many people did state who they thought were the at the very beginning. And were you aware that he was in a contentious custody battle at the time? Very aware, yes. It was really, you know, it wasn't, you know, what I would call the literal, everybody calls it a custody battle. Custody itself, they had an arrangement that's 50-50. They had a very big, major difference. Uh, his, so his his ex-wife, Wendy Adelson, and they had a very big difference on two big issues. One was a sort of religious preferences, how to bring up the children, which wasn't originally going in the marriage that was they had agreement on. But the next one, which was the big piece at the time of his murder, was about um, the family of Wendy and she and herself at that time. This is now post-divorce, very close to the proceedings of the divorce, wanted to move to South Florida with her parents. And it was that relocation issue that spurred, you know, all of the major disputes and and I will call it my earthquake and everything else further, you know, from those moments on. And when do you begin to realize and the people around you that there was a conspiracy to murder your son? That there were hitmen hired. Right. So we didn't know that right away. There was people who did believe right away that, well, I should say two things. It wasn't random. At the Sunday morning when we met with our first time we ever met the law enforcement, go back to your question, they already knew this was not random and this was not, you know, a theft. Nobody went into the house. Everything happened in the driveway, like, you know, the entrance of the um, of the, the garage, so to speak. So there was no question that this was uh, certainly not a, um, a, you know, random shooting or anything like that. And that, and then following that, actually, we didn't know a lot for quite a while. It took a year uh, until the police anniversary of um, Dan's first year that he was murdered when they announced that they had a car. And it was really from that car, and that was really lucky. The neighbor, his name is Geiger, was the one who really saw a white or green Prius in the driveway. That was the only, the only clue that they had for a whole year. And it was um, really based on that, that they started tracking uh, this Prius and looking, searching the license. They weren't able to get it exactly, but there were uh, damages on the car, which allowed them to be able to say, okay, this is the car, so to speak. And they tracked it, you know, with the sun pole. It's amazing when you see what how they do the tracking. They used all of the regular buses on the street, the, the um, cameras in the people's homes and so forth. So that was really the beginning of how they were going to uh, really determine, you know, kind of the, where they could even go to, to figure out who, who murdered him. And, and that took a while. So nobody knew it's a murder for hire for two years. Like we didn't have any of that information until Garcia who was considered the shooter, Zegfredo Garcia, who was arrested in uh, in 2016, in May 2016. 
And during this two-year period, did you ever become concerned that the case has been forgotten, it's a cold case, we're never, we'll never know, or did the police keep you informed? The first year was hard. The first year, you know, I, I we sort of divided up after the reality of, you know, this is a, a murder, a death, and so forth. I had the portfolio, let's say, within the family of communicating with law enforcement. My daughter, Shelby, has a lot of stuff to do at the beginning, all the finances, and Phil got it, and Phil Dan's father, you know, they got involved with the estate issues, right? So we sort of separated our our uh, sort of, I call, let me call it portfolio, which is really what it was, and uh, and I had law enforcement, but there was nothing. The first year was really very, very quiet. In 2016, the FBI sting broke the case wide open. Ruth Markell and her family faced the murder trial of the hitmen who were paid to kill her son. Markell is a sophisticated business management consultant, but nothing prepared her for a criminal courtroom. She says it was a terrifying experience. It is. It's, it's a terror. It's a foreign process. It's a foreign language even before even, the, you know, one of the things I talk about is that the victim should be given more, um, um, let's call it language, before, you know, the jury even gets 12 pages of guidelines. The victims don't don't get anything. The first trial, I should say, was oh, not with, with Luis Rivera. It was with Freda Garcia and Catherine McBanawa. They decided to join their trial in September 2019. And that was the first trial because Luis Rivera had already, uh, let's call it plea bargained, and brought in Catherine McBanawa, whose arrest came in October, when theirs came in May and June of 2016. So the trial, we had so many cancellations, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, The Unveiling, you know, A Mother's Reflection on Grief, Murder, and the Trial Life. And it's particularly this part about the waiting and the uncertainty and what it feels like, you know, to be in the trial room and see actually um, the offenders, you know, for, for the first time. So the trial is a very, very emotionally um, difficult situation, experience altogether. Um, and it's not, it's besides seeing the, the two people in front of you, in this case, it was Garcia and Catherine, they dress them up, you know, like as you've seen in all these trials, they're wearing a suit, they're wearing glasses, you know, so it neutralizes a little bit the impact that the actual murderer is right sitting in front of you, you still feel it. I was more anxious before entering into the trial room. And then in the trial room, I, you know, had to see, I saw them and then you see the jury. And there's a lot of other things that just create this larger impact than just, you know, sitting in the room with the people who potentially murdered uh, your son. But it's a horrific experience. Like the whole the whole thing is is very very um, disturbing, and it's and it's and it's disturbing not just in the moments of the three weeks of the trial, it it lingers later. I mean, people who have you mentioned before about the closure, the life sentence, this doesn't go away. These images are in your head, you know, and you hear all the evidence, and you hear you go through it all, and you certain certain um, certain people who are witnesses. You really hope that they're going to do a good job. Like when Luis Rivera was a key witness, the first trial that I went to, I was like, couldn't go out with anybody for dinner afterwards because I was so worried that he had to be credible. He was a key witness. When you saw them all freshened up, dressed up, (laughs) 
Do you does the victim feel like this is a sham? They're going, they're trying to fool the jury here. Right, for sure. They do that anyway. <laughs> but but image wise for sure, because if, if I'm the parent can feel a little neutralized, you know, like from the fact of who these people really are, for the jury, it's it's the facade for sure of everything. And the and the jury has also the control because you know, the defense team sits obviously and they were two defense teams because Garcia had one defense team in this trial in September 2019. And Catherine McDonough had another defense team. And then there's, of course, the prosecutor and her group. So there's a lot of, and I don't mean this, all my four, my, my two children and their spouses at the time were all lawyers. But what I'm going to say is there's a lot of lawyerly looks, right, in the in the room. And if they dress up, uh, Catherine in a suit and the same thing with Garcia and they're at the same tables it's a big distraction and that's what I think they're doing it for obviously the jury just a sort of a subtle trying to make them think that they're good people responsible citizens that's what it is yeah. it's a big manipulation well you you've re- really uh, Dan's family's really been dragged through it here because this has been an eight year process uh, Charlie Adelson, the brother of Wendy, the ex, has been arrested, has not been tried yet, and no charges have been filed against Wendy. What has that been like, that long process of, of waiting and wondering if will everyone be brought to justice? That's the hard part, and it's also very hard because, you know, this is a case that has big P politics in it. And and from the very beginning, there we talk about law enforcement. There was definitely major differences. So this is the big deep politics between uh, the state attorney office and, of course, the Tallahassee Police Department, the FBI, in terms of who should have been brought in on day one. Right. So the controversy starts at the beginning of the arrest. That everybody. This is now. I'm talking about the public and other people that all of the people who potentially were involved in the murder for hire should have been brought in in day one, whenever there were arrests. So you have all the time, this kind of, it's more than what you see on TV, you know, the back and forth between the police and the state and the state attorney or, or whoever they're, they're working with the feds, whatever. But, but this is major and the difference uh, is always present. So this is hard because you're not only waiting and you want to know really what's going to happen. Uh, and then when so many people were actually named, so Charlie Adelson's arrest, which happened just now in 2022 on April 21st, uh, was was considered really for many people just the start of the case, although we've been through many, many hearings and many, many trials. But so this is really where the anticipation is very high. When the conspiracy to murder law professor Dan Markell came to light in the FBI sting operation, his ex-wife, Wendy Adelson, cut off contact to Ruth Markell's grandsons. One of the things that happened when we were cut off uh, right away from seeing the children in 2016, we were cut off for six, for six years. 
And at the time that we were cut off, one of our supports is expertise from a firm in New York called Gibson and Dunn. And they told me at the time, the lawyer who we worked with, Matthew Benjamin, said, Ruth, you're going to have to write a bill. I'm sitting in Toronto. How am I going to write a bill in Florida? And then all my other friends started, Ruth, you're going to have to get lobbyists and so forth. So I had this in my head. Why I wanted to tell you this, I'm backtracking, is this is so important for victim families. Many times they want to do something to memorialize their child or their loved one. And they sit on it. They become a little bit immobilized. And that's one of the reasons I want to talk about this. It was only after Garcia's trial in 2019. So what I'm telling you now is why I'm saying it is I sat for three years with this information because I wasn't ready yet, because I was committed to the criminal system, if you understand. I couldn't take another foot off the sort of emotional input to the criminal part of the case. As soon as Garcia was convicted, it loosened up for me a lot of energy. And then I met somebody, her name is Karen uh, Halpern Cyphers, who started to do the, the grandparent legislation. She met me in Tallahassee right at the end of the trial. And she says she was a friend of them. What can I do for you? And I just yelled that I was like grandparent alienation. And we started. And that's how the bill, HB 1119, and that's informally known as the Markel Act, was passed. It took us three years, too, actually, to do that. But it's a, a phenomenal success. And thank you for bringing it up. And have you been able to see your grandsons now as a result of that act? Yes, and not directly from the act, but indirectly. So what happened, we saw them once. What happened was Catherine McDonough was um, trial for February uh, 26th or so, 19th, I think was the first date, 2022, was postponed after this enhancement of the um, Dolce Vita restaurant and the wiretapping, and then was set for May 16th. And Wendy, in, in February, now this is just after the the House passed the bill and the Senate passed it 50-50, wrote me an email. I haven't heard from her for six years in terms of, you know, seeing the children or that kind of contact. I had one, one communication with her just before the trial of 2019, but this is now... She's inviting us all, when I say all, that means Shelley and her family, to a bar mitzvah for Benjamin, who's her son, turning 13. And she wants us to attend, and she's made the date of the bar mitzvah just May 14th, just before the May 16th trial. So that worked, you know, in terms of how she appears at the trial. She could say she has seen us and so forth. Anyway, we said yes, of course, we were, like, delighted. And then what happened was I said, you know, let's go for ice cream the day before. And um, and she then wrote me back, look, if you want an in-person visit with the kids, come in April. And we grabbed it. So Phil and I went down in April and we saw the children April 20th. This is an amazing story. We had a very, very good and successful visit with them. We get back on the plane and the next morning, 6 a.m., I get a call from the FBI. Charlie Adelson is arrested. So in 24 hours, we had the biggest breakthrough in this in our personal lives. We see the children, and the breakthrough in the case is really phenomenal. So that was 2022 has just been a, a very good beginning year, you know, of, of sort of consolidating a few of the outstanding concerns. 
Do you have a sense of what kind of toll it has taken on these boys who've lost their father and this controversy swirls around it? Oh, that's my biggest fear. I'm, I'm, if, if I, you know, take away all of the stuff, the criminal system, you just hit it on the nail. I'm really worried about their mental health. I don't know what they know really now. I think, I think since Charlie's arrested, this is, I don't know this factually, but I'm gathering thoughts about it. They have to know more. I think they were extremely uh, protected before and it's going to be a tough toll. And I'm very nervous to be, you know, what, what, what are you going to do when you wake up one day and you see, you know, who, who, who potentially, I'm not going to say factually, we don't know yet, who potentially could have murdered your, your father. It's frightening. The book is The Unveiling, A Mother's Reflection on Murder, Grief, and Trial Life. What is the meaning of the title? You, you have a meaning in the title. I do have a very good meaning, and I'm glad you asked. Okay, so The Unveiling actually... Uh, has two very strong meanings. One of them is the uh, part in the Jewish religion, after a funeral takes place, between somewhere between your families choose different time frames, but anyway, anywhere from 30 days to an 11-month period, you have what's called an unveiling. So it's a service. And the service is you normally at the gravesite, it's not completed until you put a tombstone on the gravesite. And the tombstone in general in the Jewish religion usually has a very large inscription on it, and it's covered with a piece of fabric until you have the actual ceremony or ritual when you're going to invite other people and have special prayers. And that's called the unveiling, where you lift the curtain, you lift this piece of fabric off, and everybody can see uh, what is happening in terms of this inscription. But why I chose the title is not only for that part of the ritual, but more specifically, that's when I started my grief process. And I talk a lot about grief because I think it's such an important topic to identify. Before, and this is nine months after I had, before I was in a daze, I had shock, I had uh, an out-of-body experience, at the, you know, the later part in three months and so forth. I even had some illness, but the grief that started... You know, it's the expression, putting the nail in the coffin. So yes. the actual fact that there's a tombstone layered on top of a gravesite was the finality for me. That's one reason. It's a bit of the personal journey about grief, but the second is more important, too. It's to lift the curtain to the public, and this is what I'm doing. I want the public to understand what is the victim experience? What are we going through? Let's follow us through the trial life. Follow us as, in my case, we're not even anywhere finished, right? We're in a murder for hire. It's going to be more, more years. And still involvement, you, you identified at the beginning. It is a life sentence. There is no closure. And what is happening to the family as we're going through this? And it's particularly important now with all the school shootings. I mean, I'm not alone in this, right? There's a lot, a lot of families who are suffering. They're suffering between, you know, their the impact of the loss on them and their suffering because of the fact that they're going to be experiencing the criminal system of which they have no previous uh, preparation for. So that's the reason it's called the unveiling. And thank you for asking because it's a very important part of why the book is written. Well, God forbid that one of our listeners someday finds himself in your shoes with a tragedy like this, but 
based on your experience, can you can you give me some high level advice of what they should do and how to try to handle it, how to live through it, and how to channel their anger? Yes, I can. I think that's important. I think yes, and everybody's going to do things at different times, and I think I think that's the most important thing to recognize. What's very good today in today's times of how we see grief and and so forth and mourning, there's there isn't a rush because people, you know, earlier on you talk about, you know, they had six weeks to, you know, and I myself, my first career is a social work. I also went for an MBA type, so I had a business type of background. But my point is, there's no limit there. You don't don't feel you have to have, you know, get over the grief like by tomorrow morning or six weeks or a year. Especially with the criminal system, it's not going to happen. So, so that's another important point. However, I in one of the recent podcasts, and I just said this spontaneously, is don't get lost in the loss, L-O-S-S. So don't get L-O-S-T in the loss. So even although you're in deep, deep grief, allow yourself to take very small steps. One of the most important steps is don't isolate yourself. And I had somebody give me very good advice at the very beginning, emotional advice. Uh, somebody who I wouldn't call her like a, a long-term friend, but certainly she was an acquaintance that could share. And she, her son had just, just committed suicide, I think a previous six months before my story. And I said to her, you know, here I am. I just lost a son. I said, you know, do you have anything you want to share with me? And she said, and it's very good advice. She said, take all the calls from the beginning because you don't always know that they're going to be there later. So in other words, don't isolate yourself. And I did that. I, luckily for me, my calls still come. But that's a very important part. The other thing is anybody who's suffering, you need to have, it's not just reduce your isolation, but get support from the clergy, from therapists, from friends, and and so forth. And then the real big thing now is like someone like myself, when I'm moving on a little bit, in terms of, you know, not in the deepest part of my grief, still very deep and very meaningful, but I'm able to to sort of lift a little bit, I would say you have to redefine yourself and find meaning. And that's important. And for me, the grandparent, the book too, but the book, you know, people ask me, is the book so cathartic? The, tr- the real answer is it's not so much because I'm still going through the criminal system. I'm waiting right now for a trial date, but the effect of the success in something like the grandparent um, legislation, I think is really is really important. So the other major advice is redefine yourself, whatever that may be. And and if you're thinking about memorializing your your child or a loved one, because it has to always be children. The children obviously take the worst out of you. Um, so then I would say that you know like. Like take those small steps to to search out what you're thinking that you want to do, and try to get to it because that that will help too. So redefine yourself. Well, the one thing that strikes me is that you became an advocate for change, especially with the Markell Act. Is that what right. you would suggest to now other victims? victims? <laughs> well, I'm actually now I'm on a new agenda. Truthfully, a combined agenda. With victims' rights, I I would like to do legal education where lawyers can have what I call, you know, sensitivity to compassion. I'm actually doing some speaking right now with different, you know, organizations and healthcare groups and so forth of how 
how to help people. Listen, the school shootings, you, you, plus you have COVID. Okay, COVID deaths in the States, you know, the, the statistics are well over a million by now. They're, it's huge. So what I'm saying is so many families are suffering. And it whatever it is that, that you're concerned with, um, you know, I would say try to either regroup if you want to do advocacy, if you want to do charity, if you just want to memorialize on a very personal level, you know, kind of take take those steps. Those are those are the small steps, but they just lift you and they start to get you in the right direction. Ruth Markell, thank you for sharing what you've learned going through this tragedy. The book is The Unveiling, A Mother's Reflection on Murder grief, and trial life. Uh, This is very, very enlightening uh, to me as a reporter because I've seen so many victims. Sometimes the victims stuck on a bench outside the courtroom, outside the trial, within earshot of the killer's family. So there's still so much that needs to be done, but thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. And of course, happy holidays and enjoy Enjoy the the nice seasons that are coming towards us right now. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast. So please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.